It's good to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, no, it hasn't been as long as since the last time, but uh, still uh, good to be here. It's always an honor and a privilege to come worship with you here at Deanwood. And I don't know about you, but uh, my house has had a rough week. And so it's always good after a rough week to come gather with the people of God and worship the God who has saved us and be reminded of the truth that he is in control even of our bad weeks. Amen. And so uh, it's an honor to be here and be with you. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 2. And as I was reminded by uh, one of the preachers that I look up to and, and, and have gleaned a lot from over the years, He talks of the passage we're going to be studying this morning as the red-headed stepchild of Ephesians chapter 2, because Ephesians chapter 2 is a very familiar passage of scripture uh, to us, but usually uh, we're geared into chapters 1 through, I mean verses 1 through 10, and many of you probably know those great verses by heart, but um We're going to spend some time in 11 through 22 where we don't typically spend a lot of time, but it has become one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I pray that as we uh, look into what Paul is communicating to the church in Ephesus in this section, that it will be an encouragement to uh, you as well. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we honor God's word and we will read together uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Paul writes this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come, and and God, I've just been reminded through the songs that we've sung and the passages of Scripture that have been read already, just 
how uh, though there are times in this life that we go through hard things and, and that we hurt and we suffer, God, we're never alone. You uh, have not only created us, but you have brought us near to you through the finished work of Christ and the fulfilling your law and uh, obediently being crucified on the cross for our sins and then being resurrected. And Lord, that now we are your children and you care for us and you treat us as your beloved children. It's just so good to be reminded that uh, after a hard week. And I pray that as we look into this passage, God, that you will speak to our hearts through your spirit. And that you will encourage and strengthen us to face the next week, the week ahead. And God, that we will be uh, a salt and light in a lost and dying world. And we love you and we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So just to give uh, a little context, we always want to be sure we sit in the context of the passage that we're studying Paul is writing this, uh, has written this epistle from prison, and he is writing to a church, the church in Ephesus, that is made up largely of pagan Gentiles, formerly pagans, whom uh, he brought the word uh, to uh, some years previous to this, to him writing this letter. And um, God was gracious to grant repentance and faith to some in Ephesus, and a church was born and planted, and um, it was a church that is very dear to Paul's heart. These aren't, this isn't just a uh, kind of a formality letter. These are people he knows well, and he is writing as an apostle of Christ, but he's also writing as a uh, fellow brother and father in the faith to many of these believers and uh, as he does so many times in his letters, Ephesians can be broken up into two, kind of two parts. One, uh, the first three chapters where he's really dealing in theology and what God has done, who God is and what he has done. And then there, he gets to this big therefore. And because he says, therefore, since all this is true that I've said, now this is how we live in light of what God has done, who God is and what he has done. And so throughout this, uh, up to this point, Paul has been explaining to these Ephesian believers what God has done in choosing for himself a people and then sending his son Jesus to redeem that people and then sealing that redemption with his very spirit as a promise, as a guarantee and then in chat, the beginning of chapter 2, reminding them what they were and what God has done. Uh, that they were dead and they couldn't save themselves. They couldn't reach out and, and grab a hold of God. So God reached down and grabbed a hold of them and made them alive in Christ. And then he ends uh, with verse 10 where he says um, that, that you were prepared for good works. The reason God has done this is to, 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 uh, for you to do good works that he's already prepared for you. And we have to remember that, you know, as we read this next section, that he's not leaving that train of thought. He's continuing with it because sometimes we can compartmentalize 
passages of Scripture. We have uh, these very handy divisions in our Bible, these headings that kind of help us understand what's going on. But we can sometimes forget that this is a letter that a man who dearly loves these people has written. And so it's not so much these different sections broken up, but it is a... um, a continuing line of thought that Paul is uh, fleshing out to these people. And so he, he picks up here, having reminded them that they were dead in their trespasses and sin, having reminded them that now they've been made alive in Christ, and that they've uh, done, that God has done this because there's works that he has prepared for them to do. He continues to remind them, and it's always interesting, we as humans, we continually have to be reminded. Sometimes I forget that. And, uh, you know, especially coming to a church where I know the pastor is faithful and expounding on the Word of God. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, we have this feeling that we need to be novel or we need to, you know, come up with something clever or, or you know, to set ourselves apart. And God hasn't called us to do that. He's called us to faithfully proclaim his word to his people because that's what we need is his word. You don't need my, my cleverness or, or me trying to be anything. You just need his word. And I have to be reminded that we as people, when we go through life, we forget. We forget where, what we were. We forget what God has done to get us where we are now. And then we forget... Um, what we are now. And so that's my aim in uh, going through this passage of Scripture that just as Paul is writing to remind them uh, what God is, who they were, what God has done, and what they are now, I, I pray that that will uh, be the same thing that we're reminded of. So he starts off, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's bad news, isn't it? He's reminding them what they already know, and I I, I suspect that there's probably... um, because of him, the, the way he writes this letter, there's probably some sensitivity there among the, the believers in Ephesus. There's kind of a, an idea that kind of we're a lower class of Christian. And we know that the other prison epistles that Paul wrote at this time, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, he wrote more directly to combat a heresy that was going around that pretty much said that. That the Gentile believers, because they were not, you know, obeying the ceremonial laws of the Jews that God had had given to the Jews, were kind of a second-rate Christian until they started doing those things, until they started observing the circumcision or the dietary laws that they were not accustomed to, but that the Jews had been commanded by God to obey. And so there seems like they probably already had some sense of this idea that we're not complete Christians because the Jews are the ones who got 
the oracles of God. The Jews are the one who got the law and the prophets. And the Jews are the one who Jesus himself said he came first to the house of Israel. And so Paul is reminding them that, yeah, that, that is a reality. That is true that you were once called uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcision. And that that was instituted by God. That that division was, uh, you know, so many ways that we try to divide ourselves as humans, right? We divide ourselves based on race or ethnicity. We divide ourselves based on socioeconomic status. We d divide ourselves, you know, blue collar versus white collar. Uh, all these divisions that we can create, but here's a, a division that God ordained and put into place. The division between those who were circumcised and set apart for God and those who were not. And so um, Paul says, you, you at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And he says again, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You had no part, no lot in Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Because we, we remember that the whole purpose in the covenants, in the laws, the, even the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws that the Israelites were to obey, the whole purpose in that was to remind and to have in the people's mind what God was going, what, what he was going to do, right? That he had promised in Genesis 3 that there would come one, the offspring of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised by him, and that in him there would be life. And all the, the law and the prophets pointed to this one, to this one Christ. And though the Gentiles uh, were not part of that, they, they were excluded from that, for they were not part of the nation that God created out of Abraham, and they were not part of the chosen people of God. And Paul says this is reality. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And you had no hope. And you were without God in this world. You were part of the world system where by in your unrighteousness, as he would write in Romans chapter 1, you suppress the truth you know about God written on your hearts. And instead of worshiping the creator, you worship the creation. You worship the things that he had made. You made false gods. You were idolaters. And that is the, the reality. That is true. But don't you love how there's always a but in Scripture? There was a but in verses 1 through 10. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, walking in the ways of the world, walking in the spirit of now reigns in the sons of disobedient, but God, right? And so now he says... Therefore, remember, at one time, you were separated. You were alienated from the promises of God, from the people of Israel. You were, you were without God, without hope in the world. And then in verse 13, he says, but now, 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you were, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What is the picture that Paul is trying to invoke here? He's, he's reflecting back to a reality that started way back in the day of the tabernacle. In Exodus, Moses was given instruction to build the tabernacle. And in the, the first five books where they were to gather and worship, and there were certain people who were excluded. And then as you fast forward and the temple was built, and then you fast forward after the first temple was destroyed, and, and now the temple that is in Paul's day in Israel, in Jerusalem, there was what was known as the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And that Gentiles who feared God could come to that point, but they could go no further. And there were several other courts before you actually got to the temple. You had the outer court, and then you had the court of women, and then you had the court of the, the Israelites. And then you could actually get to the temple and to the holy place. And then inside there was the most holy place where only the high priest could go. And so there's this, this very visible, very... Uh, tangible reality that you are the outsiders you can't come in here you have to stay out there does that isn't that reminiscent of all throughout history there's always been the haves and the have-nots and there's always been these separations where hey y'all can come here but that's as far as you can go and all the real stuff happens in here and so he's saying that, yeah, that was the reality. That was true and it, and it happened. But now, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who at one time, you only got to go to the outer courts. But now you have been brought near in Christ. You've uh, been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now I want to hang right there. For a minute, because sometimes in our Christian walk, I mean, as humans, familiarity bring, brings contempt, right? When we become so familiar with something, it almost loses its power. It loses uh, the awe of it. But I, I want to hang on what Paul is saying here when he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's significance in that by the blood of Christ because as you think about sometimes we can sing the songs, you know, what can wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus, what can make me whole again, and, and we know these things here, and we know these things here, but sometimes it just loses it's luster and we, we, we kind of take it for granted maybe or we're just not in awe. But I want to take a minute and I want us to think about what does it mean that by Christ's blood we who were far off have been brought near to God. And we can say, yeah, we were separated because of our sins, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But what did that mean? And what does it mean that Christ came to fulfill the law? It's like this. What is the great commandment? 
What is the one great commandment we've been given? To love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And would any of you disagree with me if I said there has not been five minutes of your existence, there has not been one minute of your existence and my existence in which we kept that one command. There's not been one minute that we have loved our God with all our heart, with all our might, with all our soul, with all our strength. There hasn't. But yet Christ, there has never been one second that he didn't do that. There's never been one second that Jesus, whether it was uh, from all eternity past to his incarnation in the 33 years that he walked as a man, there was never one second that Christ did not completely and fully obey the great commandment to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Isn't that amazing? And so then what God has done to bring us near is he has not had Christ sign off on an official document saying, Father, since I have kept your law, since I have earned this righteousness, I'm going to hereby sign off on behalf of all my people whom I love, and I'm going to let them partake because I've earned it for them. He did. That's not how God did it, is it? Instead, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. God made him who for not one second had ever broken the first commandment to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Made him become the sin that we have committed in which we have never loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he put him on the tree and he crushed him under the weight of his wrath toward our sin, not his, not his sin. Crushed him under the weight of his wrath so that we who were far off may be brought near. Isn't that glorious? And we should never lose sight of that. And that's why we, we, we observe the Lord's Supper. To be reminded that this salvation we have is a bloody salvation. It's not clean. It's not a formal document that was signed. It was a body that was crushed. It was blood that was spilt. It was death to bring life. It cost. And Paul's reminding these uh, Ephesian believers that now you have been brought near, but it's by the blood of Christ that you've been brought near. He says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing Wall of hostility. What is the wall? What is he talking about? Both of us. Well, who are the two parties here? Well, the two parties are the Jews and the Gentiles. This separation that God has made, these two different people, because remember, in the economy of God, there are only two types of people. There were Jews 
and there were Gentiles. And just as today in God's economy, there are only two types of people. That's it. Those who are lost and reject Christ and those who are saved and trust Christ. And that's it. And so Paul is reminding them, Jesus is our peace. He says he broke down the wall of hostility because what he's doing is he's taken both parties and made one. Don't you? Christianity is full of paradoxes, isn't it? Two things that seem to be opposites, but somehow are together. You know, uh, one God in three person, the Trinity, right? That, it defies our logic because how can three be one, right? What has God done in marriage? The two shall become one flesh. It defies logic. How can two things become one when they still remain two individual people, right? But yet it's, it's a reality. How can a just judge forgive wicked men when he himself has declared that anyone who uh, accepts the, or forgives the wicked is an abomination? A paradox. And how can one man dying on a cross break down the walls of hostility between two groups of people who have been separated from, you know, from the beginning and taught to hate one another, taught that the other one was inferior, taught that the other one was, you know, wor worse than a dog. That's what, that's what, you know, we, we know uh, of division in our culture, in our history as Americans. We know of that. But our, our history pales in comparison to the history in the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. I mean, if you remember when Jesus was uh, in his ministry, it was such a strange thing that he must needs go through Samaria because the Jews would literally go out of their way as to not pass through that place. So there was this wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is saying, you have been brought near because Christ himself has made us both one and has uh, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And how did he do it? Paul explains in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Sounds familiar. Two becoming one. So I, 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 I'm not necessarily going to take, you know, this uh, angle as the theme or the application for the message. But as an aside, this is why we don't have to work to achieve racial reconciliation. 
Christ has already done the work to achieve it. We just have to walk in what Christ has done. Because in Christ, our identity is no longer white or black or free or uh, uh, slave or rich or poor or who, uh, who's who's and have nots. Our identity is in Christ. Amen? For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives within me. And the life I now live, I live through Christ and Him living through me. And so we don't have to work to achieve something that God has already achieved. We have to walk in it. And we have to believe that He has in the gospel broken down the wall of hostility. And in any number, that's just one example, but any number of situations and, and, and relational aspects of our human existence where there's division, where there's this wall of separation, there shall never be with Christians because He has made both, whatever they are, one in Christ. So He goes on, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. That he is our peace, right? What, what is the, the, the world, the system of the world? What is it supposedly in its marketing campaign for all of our lifetimes? What has it, the goal been? World peace, right? That one day through all these wars and all this fighting, that one day we would achieve peace. And it's interesting that it's never materialized through the methods that we have created. In fact, if, if you ask probably most people wrapped up in all the culture wars we're going through right now, the end goal would be peace with everyone. But instead, in this quest for peace, we're fighting. Instead of realizing, and I know that it's because the majority, their eyes have been darkened, but peace has already been achieved. In Christ. And as Christians, that is what we need to continue to remind. And as we engage in the culture, we are not to, though we're not part of the culture, we are, we are to be separate, but we are still to be engaged because we are the city on the hill, right? We are the, the, the light that has not been hidden under the bushel. But it's been put out so that the glory of God might be seen. And so we're the ones who should be saying, listen, if you want peace, I know the guy. His name is Jesus. And he is the only, he is the prince of peace. And he is the only way that you and I will ever experience peace. Because we will never experience peace with one another if we have not already experienced peace with God. That is our biggest problem. And the reason for all the division, the reason for all the infighting is sin. That must be conquered. And we can't do that. And so, Jesus can. And he did. And he says, 
making peace that he might and might reconcile verse 16 us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility two two avenues of hostility a hostility between us and God because the the Bible says that apart from Christ we are enemies of God through our wicked works. There's not this, this idea that we're all God's children is not found in Scripture. We are enemies of God through our wicked works apart from Christ. And it is Christ in His blood that brings the peace first with God so that then we can have peace with our fellow man. And that the, that the hostility might be killed. It's so uh, amazing. Another paradox that God in his infinite wisdom would kill hostility by killing his perfect righteous son. None of us would have dreamed that up. None of us would have, would have came up with that game plan. But that's what God has done. So then, or no, I'm jumping ahead. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And here, here's the beautiful, beautiful thing about that that Paul is explaining here. Is notice, he is not saying, and he came and preached peace to you who are far, far off so that you could come over to this side and join the ones who had it all right. Did he? Now, he said he came and preached peace to you who are far off, but he also came and preached peace to those who were near, the Jews, because they needed Christ just as much. So there was not ever this separation of haves and have-nots. We were all in the same boat, but the separation was so that the glory of God may be seen in that he took two and made one in Christ. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. And that is the key to all of it. That is the, 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 the glory of it all. Is that now the two become one and have access to the Father. And I love that He is our Father. Sometimes that's another thing that we... Excuse me, we kind of, we, we've heard it so much, we pray, Father, so much, so much, that we can get dull and, and, and numb to what it means that we get to call God Father. That it's not just that Christ in His death and burial and resurrection achieved this forensic justification whereby we who are unrighteous can be legally declared righteous as a formal kind of thing and yeah, declared righteous. But no, there's also as part of salvation the doctrine of adoption whereby God has taken we who were enemies of His through our wicked works, and in Christ, in His blood, we have been made children of God. Not just called children of God, but actually treated as children of God. 
One reason this week was so tough, I have a daughter who's 21 and we had to put down her horse that she got when she was 13. And as a daddy, I wasn't so attached to the horse. I'm not, I wish I was a horse person, but I'm not. I mean, they're cool animals, but I wasn't really attached. But to, to sit and watch your child hurt and not be able to fix it, not be able to do anything about it. Can you imagine, because here's the thing, God, he can do something about it. But can you imagine sitting and watching your child hurt when you can do something about it, but you know that it's better for them that you don't? But that's why he allows us to go through things like that. Because he treats us as beloved children. And he knows what is best for us. He knows what is going to conform us to the image of Christ. And that is the great work that he has begun, that he will complete. And so he lets us, but he doesn't do it indifferent. We're his children. And he treats us like his children. He's there with us in our pain, in our suffering. It's not just a formality, it's a reality. And that is what Paul is trying to to remind these people that through Christ we both, the Jews and the Gentiles, we both have access through the Spirit to the Father, to God as Father. Even though all our lives, all we've ever done is sin against Him. And then he goes on and just reiterates verse 19 is such a beautiful. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer the outsiders. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What glorious truth. There is no wall of hostility between God or us or man, each other in Christ. That we are not strangers or aliens. We're not, you know, I've heard of small, small towns are notorious for this. Of, you know, people who move in from outside of town, they never really become part of the community because they weren't born there. They're not those people. But that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. Because our own identities have been done away with and Christ is our identity and we are in Christ. Therefore, we are members of the household of God. And then uh, just to, to, to where Paul is going, the letter to the Ephesians is really one of the foundational texts in the New Testament about the church. And sometimes, you know, we, we, we don't comprehend the weight 
of what the church is, what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so Paul takes this opportunity to expound on that. He says, Built, uh, members of the household of God. And this household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And not them as people. Not because they were great people. But because of the words that they declared. The words that they taught. By the spirit, right? The prophet, what made a prophet a prophet was that he declared, thus saith the Lord. This is what God has said. And the apostles, they taught what they had been taught by Jesus himself. And so the, what made it the foundation was not that they were great, but the message, the teaching that they heralded was great because it came from God. And he continues here, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And I know, especially some of the younger generation, I know I, I never really realized what the cornerstone was because we don't really think about it when it comes to house building. Usually in our day, a cornerstone of a house or something is kind of a sentimental thing. But in this day, the cornerstone was the, the point, the, the focal point that the whole house was built around. And if the cornerstone was off, the foundation would be off. If the foundation was off, the whole house was off. And so here Paul is saying, listen, you're part of the household of God. And this household is being built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, what they taught. And the, the thing that makes it all plumb, that, that holds it all together, is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. And then you, he says, you are being built up. Um, but, but Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have in this text Paul reminding the, the Galatian, uh, Ephesian believers. He's reminding them, listen, I want to remind you, remember what you were. You were far off. But remember what God has done in Christ through his blood. He has brought you near to the father. And now you don't you no longer know him as judge of all the earth. You know him as father. And he's done away with your identity. The two have become one in Christ. And now what you are is being built as a a temple, a dwelling place for God himself. And that one day it will be complete. It will be finished. And it will be glorious. Because for all of eternity, God will dwell with his people. And I pray that as Paul reminded them, that I have reminded you that this is the same reality we walk in today in 2024. That we had no part, but through Christ we have been made members of the household of God. And we who are far off have been brought near and are being built up together in Christ as a dwelling place, a holy temple for God to dwell in. And may, he, may we continue to pray that he complete that good work that he has begun. Amen. So I pray that you are encouraged in that, that you'll meditate on that uh, today as you go out. You know, sometimes we get the idea 
that the sermon is a culmination of the week. But Sunday is the first day of the week, and the first thing we're doing on Sunday is gathering together as God's people to hear His Word. And so that is now the beginning of the week that we are to meditate and digest throughout the rest. Amen? And let it have its way with us. Let's pray.